three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today we're going to travel back in time some 30 years or so back to the 1992 Transpersonal Association Conference and we're going to get to listen to two talks. The first one is given by Ram Dass and he will be followed by Dr. Kenneth Ring. Now this isn't exactly a spoiler alert, but I'm giving you a heads up here about what may be the worst possible setting for an acid trip. I doubt if many people have what it takes to manage an LSD experience like the one that Ram Dass describes. It speaks volumes about the degree of control that he has over his own mind. So, without any further ado, here is Ram Dass. Um, I'll just introduce myself. I'm Rick Dablin, and I've uh, managed to uh, be so motivated by my psychedelic experiences that I decided that it was something worth doing myself to. And I kind of, uh, more out of self-defense than anything else, have decided to focus on the political aspects. I applied for entrance into the PhD program in psychology at Harvard, and they told me that they would never let me in, that the ghost of Timothy Leary walks the halls, and that they don't want to talk to me. So, luckily, uh, Mark Kleiman is a professor at the Kennedy School of Government, and I had read something that he'd written that made me think that maybe there was a place for me at the Kennedy School. And so uh, he encouraged me to apply, and lo and behold, they made me the token hippie of the year. <laughs> they let me in. So now I'm working on a PhD in public policy, working on the um, regulatory aspects of the beneficial use of Schedule One drugs. And I have a nonprofit organization, which I'll hand out the newsletter to those of you that haven't got it, that's acting as a pharmaceutical company to try to raise money to fund this research. So we've actually funded preclinical animal studies, have opened what's called the drug master file at the Food and Drug Administration for MDMA, and we're funding research, and hopefully, you know, 15 years from now and $10 million later, we'll have permission to have some psychiatrists to prescribe MDMA. And I'm also interested in funding research with other substances as well. But MDMA, I think, is the one to start with. So, we can maybe just go around and introduce ourselves. Yeah, yeah maybe we should, we don't need... Well, in one sense, I feel more like a historical figure here. I, I feel that a lot of you have gone way beyond me in terms of some of the, uh, the work that's relevant today. But I, I'll share some of the sequence um, and a few things that might be relevant and useful to you guys in your research. Um, uh, historically, um, when I first uh, started to work with the um, psilocybin, the synthetic of the psilocybin mushroom, um, shortly after beginning that, um, Ralph and Tim and I and others, um, George and Gunther, were introduced to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, and um, I was a little, um, what I experienced in reading that book was a, um, a, a direct, almost um, uh, eerie parallel between certain descriptions of the bardos or the, the islands or the states that one goes through in the process of death and experiences that I had uh, had in, with the psychedelics. And, um, Fortunately, I had Ralph and Tim as colleagues, and they saw this parallel and ran with it and created a book called The uh, Psychedelic Experience, which they kindly allowed me to co-author, um, which um, was a manual for taking psychedelics and uh, based upon uh, this book that had been used for some 2,500 years as a vehicle for helping Tibetan monks 
to um, use the moment of death as a vehicle for um, releasing the clinging of mind to allow them to have, in a way, as advantageous a reincarnation as possible. Uh, and uh, potentially no reincarnation at all if they had finished their work. Uh, what I what I experienced, and this just happened uh, in some subtle sequence, was that the repetitive use of the psychedelics at first psilocybin and LSD um, started to alter my own feelings about death. Um, there was a way in which the parallel of the psychological death and rebirth process that went on in very intensive psychedelic experiences and the um, uh, started uh, to open to me the pos- the uh, an, an, a different state, a different perception of death, so that I noticed that a lot of the uh, anxiety attendant to the concept started to be absent. Um, in the course of our early work, we came across the work by Dr. Eric Kast, who was a really a very outstanding and uh, unusual man, but did some interesting research with um, with uh, people that were dying with psychedelics. And I remembered the profound statement of, in one of the articles that was published in which a nurse who had been a uh, uh, working with um, on the intensive care, I think, and then the, she developed cancer, which had metastasized extensively, and uh, she had her first uh, LSD experience, and she said at the end of it, uh, the quote was, I know I'm dying of this disease, but look at the beauty of the universe. And there was something that I heard in that, which was a shifting in, um, in, a shifting in emphasis that I uh, uh, felt extremely profoundly about. And... Um, I started to be drawn towards being with dying people because I saw that in terms of my own inner spiritual work, the um, the deepest fear that an incarnate has is the fear of death. And uh, one can, uh, as I did, fly my airplane dangerously or drive my motorcycle dangerously and try to play with the edge of death, but... I realized that coming, being in the presence of people who was dying was incredibly important work that I could do on myself as, uh, that was my original, uh, feeling about it. The experiences that, um, followed as a result of that, you know, I'm trying to get my sequence right, uh, somewhere along the way after I had been working with psychedelics for about six years, um, I began to feel the finiteness of the experience. And I felt that the uh, finiteness of the experience I was having with LSD and with uh, the other psychedelics that I had the chance to work with was a result primarily of the set that I had in the way I used them, the launching pad, if you will, where I was starting from as I started to work with them. And... Um, I felt, as others had felt, that the maps we had found, which were things like uh, um, the Tripitaka, the, the, the Sudhimaga, the, some of the Tibetan texts uh, that describe the inner states of consciousness, suggested that there were maps in the East that were much, much more sophisticated about altered states of consciousness than Western psychology, which I had been teaching up until I got thrown out of Harvard. Um, so I, along with a lot of other people like Ralph and Tim and Allen Ginsberg and many others, went to India. Uh, but I was uh, really fortunate in meeting a very a, a realized being, a being that seems and continues to seem totally free. And uh, the first thing that happened was that I began to be aware that in India there was such a different perception of death because of the depth of the reincarnational and karma models in that culture, that um, 
uh, people were, first of all, it was much more out in the open. When a person died, they were wrapped in a cloth, put on a, um, uh, on a rickshaw and driven to the funeral grounds. So you'd see bodies going through the streets and, uh, the burning ceremony was available for everybody. I mean, I went to the burning ghats in Benares where they burn the bodies all day and all night and, uh, I took uh, LSD and stood in the middle of this uh, to um, steep myself in the whole process of heads being cracked open and bodies being burned. And, um, and it felt as if the nature, the naturalness of the, the cycle of birth, life, death, was somehow much more perceived in a much more healthy way than in the culture I had grown up with. I realized the sickness of my own culture at that point. And, um, and I, I imbibed it very deeply, uh, in my being. Not only the smell of the dead bodies, but the, uh, just the quality of these values. Um, the combination of the psychedelics, which had given me the inner experience of seeing my own dissolution of an identity, um, and also the experience of the way the culture treated death in the East. Uh, so I came back and I started to work much more systematically with dying people. And um, my intent at that time, as you can see, was that it was work on myself as a spiritual practice to be with dying people. And then I saw that as uh, in Buddhism, for example, in a way, it is perceived that your entire life is a preparation for the moment of your death. And life is a preparation for dying as consciously as you possibly can. So, I saw that there were some people who wanted to use their dying. I kept meeting people who said, uh, who had been doing some spiritual practice or had taken drugs, who then were dying, and they said, they would like to work on themselves through the process of dying. And um, I started to conceive of the possibility that the people who wanted to awaken through dying and the people like me who wanted to work with people who were dying to awaken should somehow come together and we would create what is basically an ashram. It's basically a place where everybody is there to awaken. It just happens some of them are dying and some of them are helping the others die. And uh, so I first spelled that out in a book with Sidney Cohen in 1966, a book on LSD. And then the kinds of experiences that followed over the years, um, I'll describe uh, just one... Um, sitting with a woman uh, who lived with uh, the Huxleys. Her name was Ginny Pfeiffer. And uh, she was dying of uh, pelvic cancer, and I was called in to be with her. And uh, she was a very uh, heavy intellectual person, and she said in the first time, I don't want any of your spiritual bullshit, uh, Dick. Um, and that was fine. And... Uh, so she turned me off completely, and I went away, and then uh, Laura said, now she's much closer to death, would you come again? She can't talk. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I went again, and um, um, I sat by her bedside, and she was um, lying on the bed, and she was um, uh, writhing in pain from her pelvic cancer. She was using the minimum amount of uh, pain... Uh, painkillers, alleviation pain, and uh, she was just uh, writhing with pain and looked very uncomfortable and unhappy. She didn't uh, want me to talk, so I sat there and I started to meditate next to her bed, and I started to do what is traditional in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, which the monks do uh, as part of their training, they go to the charnel grounds or where the bodies are thrown, because in Buddhism they don't burn the bodies, they throw them there for the birds. Uh, to eat, and I was watching, and they watched the fly-infested corpse, the bloated corpse, the skeleton, and they meditate on it in order to see the impermanence of the body, and in order to deeply understand the impermanence of the body. So I was just meditating on her body, and um, at the same moment in my heart, feeling the pain of somebody who I was very attached to, and I, she's great fun and wonderful woman, 
uh, my friend dying and feeling the sadness and watching that in my meditation and then just watching the decay of the body. And I started to get into a very deep space, uh, which I, uh, the experience I had was the, the entire room turned purple. That was my personal experience. That moment, I see her rising on the bed and she turns to me and she says, I'm feeling such incredible peace. I don't ever remember feeling this before. I wouldn't be anywhere else but here at this moment. She's saying this, and at the same moment, her body is writhing in pain. Now, the question is, who's feeling the pain? And it was uh, a great appreciation to me that the planes of consciousness, the plane at which pain exists, in which one identifies with the being the experiencer of pain and the planes of consciousness in which one sees pain but is not identified with it um, are different and that she, through this connection, had moved into this other plane of consciousness through a contact high or whatever you want to call that thing. I don't know. So, um, I have uh, continued to work with uh, people that are dying and have... and. I now work with a very large a lot of AIDS patients, and I'd say for the past 15 years I've been helping people die, and I've found that it is probably the most ecstatic part of my life. And I say that um, because what I find is that this kind of work demands of me that I transcend my usual... Um, defense structures, it demands a quality of truth. Um, it's as if that being pulls from me something more than my, more than I would be used to giving to other people in an interpersonal way. Um, in doing that work, I've been learning and I continue to learn a huge amount. And um, I had already guided many hundreds of, of, of acid trips over the years and um, other psychedelics. And what I remember was, uh, because my pattern of guiding people was that I always took it with them. I didn't give it to them. I always took it with them. That was the first thing. Because I felt that I didn't want to be down in the control tower when they were up above the clouds. I didn't want to lose them. I wanted to stay with them. I took a small dose. And then I usually dedicated myself for eight hours to just being with their consciousness, never straying for a moment. I didn't have my own fantasies or thoughts. I just stayed with them, even when they seemed to be comatose. I mean, I just stayed right there with their consciousness. And um, the few times that I had people that had what were caught with I never know what, what is, whether a bad trip is really a bad trip because I don't know whether suffering is grace or hell. I mean, you've got to realize what a weirdo I am. But um, people that had difficult trips was when some circumstance happened where our consciousnesses separated from one another for a moment. And they went towards me and I wasn't there. And then they felt isolated and they felt alone. So I really kept it as a very um, sacramental way of working in the sense that I really feel a tremendous moral commitment that if you're going to be in the presence of somebody that, whose consciousness opens and it's new to them, that you be right there with them and available, not directing them, not coming on to them, not doing anything, just being there. And what I've learned is that people's safety at being heard just being heard, being listened to and being heard, and feeling the presence of another being is the kind of support that allows people to go extremely far and extremely deep, psychedelically and in the work with dying. Um, now, because the circumstances often haven't been ones where I could use psychedelics with people that are dying, in the cases I have used them, um, it's been um, I never uh, would 
was able to use a psychedelic without the person in advance knowing exactly what it was they were getting into. I felt that there was a moral limit to using somebody's experimental subject to imposing psychedelics for their own good, to giving it to somebody that they didn't expect. I've made some moral errors in this line. I mean, they were errors that I made because I was too drugged, by the way. But uh, they're errors that I have to live with. And there are people I assume are all right. But um, I, I feel a very uh, strong uh, moral conviction about having people understand and ask for and want what they are getting and it not being presented as if it was something else. I, I really feel strongly about that. Um, in the, um, as the years have gone on, and I've done this over and over again, what I've found is that my attitudes towards death have shifted so deeply that I find myself often sitting at a bedside of somebody, say, a young person with AIDS whose, whose family's ostracized them, whose economics is uh, completely wiped out, with an opportunistic illness and Carposi sarcoma and neuro, uh, I mean, the whole, whole thing. And it's, it's, it's as hard as a human being can die in many ways. Um, and I find myself in, with a set of feeling simultaneously of one is that my my heart is breaking for this human being because of the, the dream that is being crushed, the human dream that's being crushed. At the same moment, there's another part of me that is um, absolutely equanimous, perfectly quiet inside, just watching the phenomena of the universe occurring, the life and the death and the passing as if the leaves and the color of the leaves are changing. It has that quality of absolute uh, all rightness. It's all right. And then there's another part of me that I've been embarrassed about that is, uh, I can describe it because I saw it in my guru so often, it's a cosmic giggle. It's an inner laugh at the play of life, at the play of life and death. And um, what I've experienced now is that as I've worked on myself to become an instrument for being in the presence of somebody that's dying, what I do is I offer myself to that being and literally, it sounds strange and almost masochistic from psychodynamic level, is actually fall into love with each of these beings that it's not a romantic love, it's not a possessive love, but it's a space of merging, of non-differentiation with them, of just being, um, just through that practice of listening and tuning and being and hearing and opening and opening and opening until you have, in a sense, taken on all of their pain and suffering. Not that you're holding on to it, not that you're a good person, you're not taking it away from them, but you're not separating yourself to protect yourself from their pain. And so what I have learned is that my reactions to suffering are key as to how helpful I am to people that are dying. And to the extent that I am afraid of pain and haven't cultivated a part in myself of awareness that can say, I don't want the pain, but if it's here, ah, so we'll work with it. The extent that I've cultivated that other part of me, I can stay open in the presence of their pain and allow myself to feel their pain and feel this kind of merging quality. And what I watch is, uh, uh, just to give you one, I, I, I'll stop in a, I don't want to, um, I don't know what I want to do. I don't even know what I'm here. Um, uh, my um, my stepmother um, was uh, dying of um, uh, cancer that had metastasized to her liver and so on. And I was uh, working with helping her die, being with her through her death. And, and we became very close. And she was a very tough woman. She was um, a very strong ego, very um, knew what was right and what was wrong. She had a 
a religious bent, but she was not certainly um, uh, somebody that was wide open to spiritual liquidity across planes of consciousness. Um, very good New England solid woman. And her pain got more and more intense. And I saw, the reason I bring her up is because she's a dramatic example of something I see again and again and again. If I listen carefully enough, there was a moment when she was fighting the pain and resisting. Stephen Levine and I have done a lot of work with the resistance against pain and how it exacerbates pain. And I know a lot of you know a lot about that, how when you defend against pain, it increases the experience of pain. And um, she was really... Uh, the will, I'm not going to suffer, I, uh, this is pain, it's terrible, death is horrible, you know, that's a whole strong conceptual model of reality, of life and death. And there was a moment <clears throat> when she surrendered, when she gave up. Now, in Western culture, giving up is seen as failure, and you all know, you see through that, but you can hear it, how deep it is in all of us. You can go on, hang in, and she gave up. And <clears throat> most people psychologically would then describe her as going into a depression um, about her death. But at that moment when she gave up, I, we were lying in bed and I was holding her in my arms and we started to just whisper about consciousness and instead of her pulling back into an emotional reaction to the giving up, it was very much like seeing um, somebody inside an egg and the shell has just broken open. And uh, a being appeared at that moment who was so radiant, so incredibly beautiful from within, so joyful, so light, that she had never seen herself that way in this lifetime. And she and I both celebrated, the not in words, just in presence, the beauty of this moment of her birth. And from that moment until her death, she stayed in this absolutely exalted life, seeing her death as the way they talk about in India, called dropping the body. She was just going to drop her body. She had broken the identification with that which died. And I just recall her last moment, and she said, uh, Richard, sit me up. And I put her legs over the end of the, over the bed, and I held her up, and her, she was falling forward, and I put my hand against her chest. Falling back, I put the other hand against her back. And her head was lolling, and I put my head against her head so she could sit really upright. And then she took three deep breaths, each in-breath longer, each out-breath longer than the in-breath, and she died. And if you read the Tibetan literature, the, one of the ways, in the traditional ways in which the monks leave their body is to sit up, take three breaths, and die. She obviously wasn't trained in that and didn't know that, but I experienced that I had been privy to something that reminded me about what was possible in this business. So, I'll stop, except to just say that I am, um, I, I'm, I first honor the the willingness for you to stay with the 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 discipline necessary to put together a game like this. And I want to apologize to you for whatever we did back in the 60s out of our greed to go ahead that caused you all this trouble now. Because because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was part of that. Um, I realized that the protocol focuses on the drug on the effects of the MDMA, but I really want to encourage you to recognize that the psychological environment and your relationship to the people, while it is only said, depending on their readiness and willingness, the subjects will be encouraged to have verbal interactions with a therapist, discussing the content of the experience and how it relates to pain reduction, 
I just want to, I mean, I understand how the government hears that, but from your and my point of view, the difference between um, somebody who's had MDMA and somebody who had a controlled substance, all of us in this room know that a, a controlled experiment with psychedelics is its a monstrous joke at some level. I and mean, we've just got to face the fact that it was a joke. We are doing it out of a game we have to play by saying it's nothing, but we'll prove that it's not the null hypothesis. Just prove the null hypothesis. But as Ralph, who was part of the Good Friday experiment, will, I'm sure, reassure you that the people that took the psychedelic had no, they, there was no question of who would have the psychedelic after they had taken it. And the kind of interaction you as human beings will have with the people that had the MDA will be entirely different from the kind you will have with the people that took the controlled substance. And just the metaphysics and the love and the demand for your presence and the involvement are variables that are so profound that you will literally never know, ultimately, what was drug and what wasn't drug. You will only know what was drug plus all the rest of it. So, And I, under, I just encourage you to focus in your own lives on seeing this as work on yourself, even though here you're working on subjects and understanding, and as much as you can, creating with the people you work with a collaborative contract in which you share your truth and find what in the protocol prevents you from sharing any truth and look at that very carefully if there's anything. And I don't think there is anything in here. I've looked at it. Why don't I stop now? Is that all right? You want me to talk about Huxley? Yeah. Rick asked me just to say one thing. In, in, um, when Aldous Huxley was dying, Laura gave him LSD, and um, she wrote about it in this timeless moment, and she and Aldous, she sat by Aldous's bedside, and he couldn't speak, and he wrote on his pad, now I don't feel any sensation in my legs. He was watching his body die. And um, I was um, critical of all this in that in that writing, and Rick has taken me not to task, but he's questioned uh, my wisdom in doing that. Um, the deeper you get into um, spiritual practices, the more you see the the pitfall of the way the mind works, and the ultimate place being curiosity. And um, there, there's a way of not being personally involved in your death, but in a slightly dissociative way, psychologically, pulling back to appreciate it as an interesting phenomenon. That's a level. It's another plane of consciousness. But it isn't the plane of consciousness that is possible where the body, the dying, the person that's dying, all of it dissolves back into just pure, undifferentiated awareness. And I never experienced in my time with Aldous or my readings of any of Aldous's work that quality of his being. I felt that he always remained the uh, exquisite appreciator of life. And I felt that even at the moment, I don't think the LSD did that to him, but I don't think a 100 micrograms of LSD was enough to take Aldous beyond the power of his own mind. And I felt that with Alan Watts. I felt that with many, many people. I felt that that there are your mind can get so clever, you can socialize the drug very, very quickly. And I felt that all of these people did that. And I found it's very hard for me not to do that again and again and again. Just one more thing about the protocol is that the use of earphones, eye masks, imagery, just remember how it separates people at the same moment as how you're trying to create a nice setting for them and having a feeling of standardization. It may be that you want to hold a hand during it. It may be that you want to do something just in some way so you, the person doesn't get isolated because paranoia, while MDMA is really good in the sense that it doesn't feed paranoia a great deal, 
so the conditions of isolating a person that's already feeling isolated, because they come in feeling isolated because they're dying. Because when you realize, when you see the world a dying person is in, they are almost totally surrounded by people who are at some psychological level distancing themselves from the person. Nurses, doctors, family, everybody. The idea, you're seeing the projections of everybody around them, the projections of their own fear of death. Ministers, rabbis, everybody. And so you realize how isolated a person that's dying is. And all of us that know set and setting realize that to take somebody through a psychedelic experience in a way that isolates them psychologically, to me, that doesn't seem like an optimum strategy. I mean, others may... Ralph, who knows ritual much better than I do, may understand this in a ritualistic way, in a way that I don't understand it. But that's what I think. And that's where Ram Dass's talk came to an end on this tape. His talk was then followed by another brief talk that I'm going to play for us right now. This talk is given by Dr. Kenneth Ring, who is a professor emeritus of psychology at the University of Connecticut. And he's perhaps best known as one of the leading researchers in the field of near-death experiences. Like you, sometimes when I read about a person's near-death experience, I feel as if I'm actually reading about a full-blown major psychedelic trip. And, as we will hear in a few moments, Dr. Ring, one of the world's leading experts on NDEs, also sees a possible connection between them. Now, here is Dr. Kenneth Ring. Um, friends, I think that you'll be relieved to know that um, my remarks will be very brief and probably dismayed to find out soon enough that they'll be of almost no value whatever. <laughs> particularly because of what has already been said here by our first two speakers. But since Rick did do me the honor to ask me here to address you, I'll do so, uh, I guess, in my own terms. Like the people who have spoken before me, I also am a psychologist, but unlike them, I'm a researcher, I'm not a therapist. And as I said before, I've, I've not worked uh, with uh, dying persons professionally, although uh, my, my stepfather just died in uh, California this year, and so I did spend 10 days in the hospital with him. It was a very interesting experience, but not particularly relevant to what I would like to talk about here, because I've been asked um, to uh, talk about the implications of what I have studied over the last 15 years of near-death experience for possible work with uh, dying patients. Um, I've thought about this a fair amount, even though I haven't done work along these lines, because I've had occasion to give talks to hospice groups in the United States or in hospitals or to nurses or other healthcare professionals. And I don't want to talk about the near-death experience uh, today. I'm going to be doing that later in the conference. But I think I would just draw out three aspects of it that I think might be relevant to the kind of research that a number of people here have an interest to do uh, with psychedelic agents. Um, Ramdas uh, touched on this very eloquently also, so I need hardly say more about it, but certainly one facet of the near-death experience that's almost universal among people who go through and survive this experience is the feeling that they have when they undergo it. The, the most common word used to describe what it feels like to die is peace. But it is not just simply uh, peace as such. It is an overwhelming, absolute, total peace. To give you an idea of the, of the depth of the feeling that accompanies the transition into death among the people that I've talked with who were on the verge of what they thought was imminent biological <coughs> demise, I remember one woman said, uh, reflecting on this aspect, she said, if you could take the 1,000 best things that ever happened to you in your life and multiply by a million, maybe, she said, with the emphasis on the maybe, you could get close to this. I remember another man saying, uh, peace, and he was, he was giving me a, uh, he wrote me a description of this, uh, I didn't interview him, but he said peace, and he capitalized every single letter in the word and then put a couple of exclamation points behind it and said peace. But to give you an idea of what this piece was, you'd have to write the letters uh, uh, a mile high in soft glowing colors. 
So the quality of peace that attends the experience of dying is, I think, beyond imagination for anyone who hasn't had this experience. There's another aspect of the near-death experience I point to. Virtually everyone that I've talked with, and I think this is the common experience of other NDE researchers, has said that as a result of this experience, their fear of death has been, if not extinguished and extinguished permanently, then radically, drastically reduced. Almost everybody talks about this particular effect, the loss of the fear of death. And the third thing that I'll mention is that almost invariably, people who have this experience will say afterward, in terms of its implications, that not merely that they've come to believe, but they know with a deep inner certitude that there is some form of conscious existence after what we still hear called death. So the feelings of peace, the sense of the loss of the fear of death, and the sense of some continuation after death, these are almost three universal attributes of uh, the experience of dying, the near-death experience, as I've studied it. Now, it's obvious that if you could induce through a psychedelic agent or in some other way aspects of this kind of experience in people and in dying people, then you would certainly uh, ease the transition into death. You'd give people, in a sense, a rehearsal for death. Now, all of us who are listening to uh, these words of mine know this is hardly an original idea nor a new one. It's been around for a long time. Everybody here, I'm sure, is familiar with the Spring Grove experiments, the research at uh, the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center. Uh, Rich was involved with this, uh, Stan Groff, a number of others, which showed that LSD given to terminally ill cancer patients could be of enormous benefit to them, but more than that in this context, that in a number of instances, people who had this kind of treatment did experience many of the aspects of the near-death experience that I've just spoken of, and were able to testify that this was very helpful in preparing them for their eventual death. And even outside of uh, a death context, I've talked with many people, and probably there are people in this room that could testify to this, who have told me something like, well, I've never had a near-death experience, but uh, I had a high-dose LSD session, and I, I had all of those things that you talk about as characteristic of a near-death experience. There's nothing unique about a near-death experience. It's only that coming close to death is a reliable pathway to release all these kinds of experiences. There are other ways, and obviously LSD and other drugs can do it. This is obvious. I just mention it here more or less for the record, and uh, since most of you already know about this. Obviously, the, the main thrust of this uh, meeting of the research protocol, which I've just gotten, haven't had a chance to read, is on MDMA, and I have some a personal interest in MDMA also uh, since discovering it in 1985. Um, but I have a kind of professional interest in this, too, although, as I said, I've never worked professionally with these substances, because I've been interested to talk with people who have had near-death experiences, who have also explored the uses of MDMA. And I've questioned them about how the experiences compare. And one thing about what they've told me has really struck me and has stayed with me, and it may be that it would be useful to you to bear in mind, perhaps it's even mentioned uh, some way in your protocol, I don't know, but... The three people that I can think of whom I asked about this said that the feeling of wordless love that they encounter during the NDE, in which so many other people speak of, as essentially the, the heart of the NDE, that that feeling of love was almost indistinguishable from the feeling of love that they had on MDMA. It was the same feeling. And I, I've heard about uh, Marilyn Ferguson, who many of you will know, told me about a, an instance that she knew of, of exactly the same kind of comparison. So just that alone would be, I think, additional fuel to the uh, rationale that it might be very useful to use MDMA with the terminally ill if it could give that kind of experience, that sense of love, which is death. Um, Yevgeny was mentioning in his initial introduction uh, his work with ketamine, and I, I have had some experience with an interest in that as well. Um, uh, I know there are some people, and there may be some people here, who believe that it is, uh, to use a fancy word, a thanatomimetic, I can't say it, thanatomimetic, yes, I should have had you say that. It's an experience that induces something like a near-death experience. That wasn't my experience when I took it. Uh, I think it's quite different in some ways from the NDE, as I've understood it, from talking with many people who have this experience. 
But that being said, I, w- I would also go on to say there certainly are aspects of the ketamine experience, as doubtless many of you know, that are suggestive of some features of the near-death experience, the sense of complete separation uh, from the body, a disembodied existence, and other, other transcendental features, would make it an obvious candidate for uh, use with a terminally ill. And I do know of one oncologist in California who some years ago, I've forgotten his name unfortunately, but I, I met him and participated as a volunteer subject in his study, who was doing a pilot study with uh, ketamine, uh, with terminally ill patients, I think mostly with cancer patients, it may have been some people suffering from AIDS as well were in his sample. Uh, I don't know what happened to that study, what the final results were, but I know that he himself was persuaded of the efficacy of this drug for this particular purpose with the terminally ill. So I guess, speaking as a researcher, all I really have to say is that I support and encourage uh, these efforts to use some of these substances and perhaps others with the terminally ill. I think it could uh, enormously benefit um, the people who would be given these substances, and as the two previous speakers brought out so well, certainly benefit those who work with individuals in this way. I have a feeling that the death context, as it were, in which these substances would be used might even enhance their value. Uh, I was talking to Yevgeny earlier, and uh, he mentioned to me that he was using one of the instruments, one of the questionnaires that I developed for my own work on the near-death experience in his work with uh, his ketamine patients and found it useful. Um, I know other people have made use of these instruments as well, and so I would simply like to say if any of the work that I've done or any of the uh, instruments that I've developed for a research on NDE, particularly for changes that people experience afterward in terms of the loss of the fear of death or belief in the continuation of life following death or other spiritual values, if any of these instruments would be useful, I'd be happy to make them available to people or talk more fully about them with you afterward. So, thank you very much. Could you talk just a bit more about how those questionnaires could be used? Because we, we haven't yet included it. Yes, well I could talk about one in particular, it's called the Life Changes Inventory, and it essentially asks people to say how a particular experience, in the case that I'm studying, a near-death experience, altered, if it altered at all, a person's value or belief, having to do, say, with feelings of compassion, feelings of love toward others, uh, their feelings or fears about death or a life after death, their desire to help other people, their ability to live life more or enjoy life more fully, to appreciate life more fully. It's a fairly wide range of uh, value clusters and beliefs uh, that might be expected to change following some kind of transcendental experience. And I have found, at least in my own work, uh, very substantial changes that people who have near-death experiences report on this particular inventory and as I was saying, Afghani and I were talking about this earlier, it's an instrument that can be fairly easily adapted for anybody who wants to look at the effect of one or a small number of very powerful transcendental experiences to see what kinds of change might ensue in the lives of people afterward. I, I, I'm sorry, I'll just add one more thing. I did bring copies, not of these particular instruments as such, but uh, I bought copies of my last two books uh, for display purposes. Uh, they're called Heading Toward Omega and uh, the Omega Project. And if anybody is interested to look at those questionnaires or others that I've used, they're in the appendices of both of those books. The second, the Omega Project, has an updated and expanded version of the Life Changes Inventory that I've just discussed. Would you expect that the changes along certain values could be correlated with pain reduction? Well, I, it's interesting to talk about that because uh, I haven't thought about it uh, in, in any depth at all, but one of the things that happens to people who have near-death experiences is they have no sense of pain and this tremendous peace instead. So I think there's kind of a built-in correlation. Many of the people that I've talked with, of course, are essentially analgesic. Uh, they're in an analgesic state for pain, and they feel a tremendous euphoria, a bliss beyond all words, as I've tried even briefly to, to indicate. Uh, if there's something similar that happens in, with the use of some of these substances, then I'd expect the same kind of correlation might obtain for people who are, are given psychedelics to assist their dying process. But as we in our research trade say, it's an empirical question. It could easily be investigated and the correlations determined. Well, thank you. 
I probably shouldn't tell this little story, but since Dr. Ring brought up Marilyn Ferguson, and sadly since Marilyn is no longer with us, well, I think it's maybe okay for me to tell it. As you know, she was the author of The Aquarian Conspiracy. This book, which had a major impact on me, was very influential also as a catalyst for discussions about personal and social transformation. Dr. Ring says that Marilyn told him about a friend who tried MDMA. Well, I happen to know that Marilyn herself had at least one MDMA session, because the person who launched her on that trip was a good friend of mine. So, my guess is that Marilyn was actually speaking from personal experience and asked Ken to not bust her since MDMA was illegal at the time she tried it. Of course, it's illegal now too, I guess, <laughs> except in a setting under the MAPS uh, protocol. Also, as you most likely figured out already, the other voice that you heard on these recordings from time to time was none other than Rick Doblin. And since so many of us have known Rick for a long time, it's sometimes easy to overlook the significance of his work. How many people do you know who are long out of college return to get a doctorate just so they would be listened to more closely? Well, Rick did just that. I may not agree with Rick about some things, but in the Psychedelic Hall of Fame, I think that Rick Doblin is right up there with Albert Hoffman when considering the long-term effects of their work. In the Navy, we'd give him a Bravo Zulu, but <laughs> I can't tell you what that stands for because I think it's still classified. Just ask an old sailor what it means. Now, getting back to the matter at hand, what did you think about the story Ramdas told about taking acid and walking through a place where there were numerous corpses being burned? Personally, I can't imagine a worse setting for a trip. <laughs> of course, uh, after listening to Ram Dass and Dr. Ring, I may have to revise that opinion. It just may be the perfect way to overcome one's fear of death. For me, the end of that fear came with a long-ago ketamine experience in Palenque. Statistically, I'm probably closer to dying than you are, but I can honestly say that I haven't even given it a thought in many years. That one experience was so transformative that it has permanently changed my attitude about dying. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way for everybody. But if you keep working on your concerns about dying, and if you are fortunate enough to find the proper lubricant for your mind, you can banish that fear and begin to enjoy each day as it unfolds without worrying about what comes next. Of course, that's easier said than done, but with a little help from your friends, it isn't impossible. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends. <laughs>